it is Palm Sunday, but this is not a Palm Sunday message. In fact, this it was a little bit of a struggle to make the decision to go ahead and preach this next message in the series that we've been doing on the God of the Valleys, just because it is Palm Sunday. And I want don't I didn't don't want you to think I'm just ignoring Palm Sunday. We've talked about Palm Sunday. But I just feel like God has a word for somebody in this place. There's something that he wants to say to us. There's somebody that needs to hear this today. I believe that with my heart. And we're, we're going to preach the next sermon in the series that we've entitled God of the Valleys. And we've been talking about various valleys in scripture and what the lessons are from those valleys that apply to our lives. Because we all walk through valleys in life, don't we? We all do. And there's different kinds of valleys, different things that we walk through. And, and so this morning... This one, in some way, it's probably the hardest of the entire series that I'm going to preach. And we're going to be talking about the Valley of Trouble. And as I said, I believe this is, sermon is for somebody here today. I believe somebody is going to hear from God and God's going to do something in your life. So if you, if you have your Bible, turn to Joshua chapter 7, verse 20. Joshua 7, verse 20. And uh, then right after that, we're going to read two verses from the book of Hosea. So if you need to look that up in the index <laughs> real quickly, you can do that. But Joshua chapter 7, verse 20, this is what it says. Achan replied, it is true. I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw in the plunder a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. They're hidden in the ground inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent and there it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. They took the things from the tent, brought them to Joshua and all the Israelites and spread them out before the Lord. Then Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will, be, will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him, and after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan, they heaped up large, a large pile of rocks, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. Therefore, that place has been called the Valley of Achor, or you could say the Valley of Trouble, because Achor means trouble. It has been called that ever since. Now turn to Hosea chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 14. We're just going to read two verses. And, you know, I always find it very interesting when God finds some little obscure reference somewhere and then he brings it forward through the spirit of the prophet in a, into a word later on in some other book in some other place that doesn't seem to have any connection. And you begin to see what he's doing. But at first glance, you may wonder, what in the world can this possibly mean? And then God brings forward such a magnificent portrait for us to see. So Hosea chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. He's talking about Israel, wayward Israel. I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor. What? Hasn't that sound familiar? The valley I will make. There I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor. A door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth and as in the day she came up out of Egypt. Now, just look at the middle of that verse before we pray. I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. What does Achor mean? We're getting a little bit of a ring up here, Chuck. I will make the valley of trouble a door of hope. 
That's powerful. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray this morning that this message will just be brought to life in the hearts of the hearers. I, I know, God, that if I dare preach this message in my own strength, that my efforts will be worthless. But I'm believing that your spirit will commune with ours deep within, in, in our inner man, in the, in the secret place. God, we just pray for, for that sweet communion with you personally. Each one of us speak deeply to us. And I pray, God, that when we leave this place, every person, uh, those who want to and even those who don't want to, would, would say, Lord, today I have heard from, from the Lord God. I believe you for this. In the strong name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. The trouble with this passage that we read about the, the story of Achan is that it is so hard for contemporary Western Christians to understand and to accept because of the seemingly merciless judgment of this man Achan. He, he, it's just so shocking to our modern Western sensibilities when we read it. If, if you're like me, you're reading along and, 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 you're, and, and you, as you read the second chapter of Joshua, you keep thinking that something's going to happen, that the, the cavalry is going to ride in, that there's going to be some wonderful thing that will happen that as he comes forward at, at the last and finally makes his confession and he says, I have sinned. Yes, I did it. I lied. I coveted. I stole from God. I deliberately and intentionally broke the will of God. I acted in rebellion and disobedience. I have sinned. We read it and we hope that somehow or another something will happen to save the man. But instead, this horrifying sin brings destruction upon Achan and upon his household. The truth is evident in the lives of those who live in rebellion against God. And this is the truth. Sin brings trouble. And it brings trouble now. I heard a pastor tell a story of a time early in his ministry when an elderly pastor came to preach at his church. And looking back later on, he realized that this elderly pastor was probably only in his 50s. But at the time, you know, when you're young, 50 seems like you're just decrepit. How could he even stand on his own, right? And he, he remembers that in, that in one of the, this elderly pastor sermons, he, this pastor said, I believe that we suffer for every sin we commit. And the young pastor went to him afterwards and he said, Brother, I, I don't believe that. I, I don't believe that we suffer for every sin that we commit. What about grace? Well, d doesn't grace forgive us? And the older pastor said, grace forgives us, but we suffer. He said, there is suffering for every sin we commit. And the young pastor said, I, I, don't, I don't believe that. I just don't believe that. And the older pastor said, sure you don't. You're only 28. At 28, nobody believes that. But when you're my age, you'll believe it. He said, sin not only has a payday someday, someday but we suffer in this life. Sin brings trouble. Sin creates suffering. Now, I don't know, of course, all that God is trying to say to us through the story of Achan and the, and the Valley of Achor, which, by the way, Achor is a derivative of, of his name. It would mean like troubled troubler, uh, one who brings trouble upon us. I, I don't know all that God is trying to say to us in this, in this story recorded in the book of Joshua, but it, it seems to me that it is obvious that, that maybe the most important thing that he is saying is, that if we live in the domination of rebellion and sin against God, we inherit trouble for ourselves and we bring trouble upon those who are around us. The worst thing 
is not just that we receive trouble in ourselves, but I think the worst thing is that we bring trouble on the people around us. Because here's what is true. And if you've ever been around somebody who has who uh, lived in sin, you'll know this is true. Nobody sins in a vacuum. Nobody sins and it only affects them. Their sin affects other people. Your sin affects other people around you. When you sin, everybody suffers in one way or another. Romans chapter 1 tells us that when sinful humanity insists on pursuing the sin that they want so badly and they replace God with idols of its own making, then God gives them over to their sin and they receive in themselves the penalty for their own sin. Yet we have come to the place in the United States of America where we cannot even meaningfully consider the possibility that, that, that when suffering comes, that it may possibly come because of sin. That's considered high-handed, arrogant, and judgmental. And we, we have in our nation, and tell me if this isn't true, we have made a God of our own inclination toward tolerance. And yet God is perfectly clear. Sin brings trouble. It brings trouble in our flesh. It brings trouble in our spirit. It, it, I, I don't think it's so much that, you know, that God looks down on the face of humanity and isolates some poor guy sitting in a bar and says, well, I don't, don't like him. He's been drinking long enough. I'm just not going to stand for it anymore. I'm just going to strike him with cirrhosis of the liver. That's not what I'm talking about at all. I think it is that if you violate the will and the purpose of God for your body, which is the temple of the Holy Spirit, and if you do that long enough, consistently enough, you are going to suffer. And that suffering is not exclusive to us. Our sin causes the people around us to suffer as well. Think about it. What about the drunkard's children? What about his wife? What about his mother? What about his father? What about the poor, innocent family that leaves an, a, a worship service at a church and they get in their car and they're happily driving down the road singing praise choruses as they go and some drunk veers across the center line and brings untold misery and destruction into their lives. You see, every time a person sins, somebody suffers. There's a price to be paid for sin and it's, it's a terrible price. Achan learned that. Achan's sin troubled everyone around him. It troubled the nation. It troubled the people. It brought defeat at the city of Ai. This is what, what we didn't read leading up to the story was the reason they discovered that there was sin in the camp was because they had gone to, to, into battle against this small little city of Ai that they should have been able to defeat easily and they lost the battle and it was all because God's hand of blessing had been lifted from the nation because of Achan's hidden sin. So it brought trouble to the nation. It, it, it brought it trouble to people. It brought defeat at the city of Ai. And the nation of Israel lost 36,000 people. 36,000 soldiers died because of one man's sin. He brought destruction on his own household. Who, by the way, if you wonder about their, their uh, uh, punishment in, included in this, they knew of his sin and they decided to help him cover it up. He didn't just bury it. You know, it wasn't like a, a 10 room mansion tent where nobody in the family knew what was going on. Everybody in the family knew what was buried there. And now for all of eternity, because of his, his, what he did, the, the name of Achan is now a symbol for hidden sin uh, against God that, that brings destruction and trouble. 
I mean, dear God, what a, what a reputation to leave behind. That's an eternal grave marker that reads, Here lies a trouble, troubler of Israel and, who left destruction in his wake. You know, there's a, there's a fascinating scripture in 1 Kings where Ahab, the wicked king, meets the righteous prophet Elijah out in an open field. And there is this fascinating little conversational exchange. And when Ahab meets him, he says to Elijah, he says, Is that you, the troubler of Israel? In other words, he says, You're a thorn in my side. Are you the one that's troubling Israel? And Elijah responds, I have not made trouble for Israel, but you and your family, your father's family have. And King Ahab was he was confused about who's bringing the, the, the problem here. Who's the cause of the trouble? Is it the, pro, is it the prophet or is it he against whom he prophesies? And the truth was Ahab and his house were the ones that had brought trouble and the judgment of God upon the people of, of God. And Achan, in the same way, had acted in greed, in deceit, in selfishness, in rebellion, and in disobedience, taking for himself some of the treasures that be, uh, of Jericho, taking for himself the things that belonged to God and stealing from God. By the way, if you've ever, ever wondered why in the world they weren't allowed to do that, it's because as they conquered the promised land, there were 10 main cities that they had to defeat. Jericho was the first city. It was a tithe of what was yet to come as they took the, the, the land, the promised land. And so the, God has always said, the first fruits are mine. The tithe is mine. And so he said, this is mine. He said, You'll, there'll be plenty of spoils later on. There'll be plenty of things for you to, 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 to find later on. But this one is mine. And I'll bless all the rest of it if you'll give me mine. And, and, and so that's why it was such a horrible thing. That's why he was stealing from God because of what was going on there. And, and in, this, in this moment, he took these things and he stole from God. Yet as he was led out to punishment to be witnessed by the nation of Israel, I have to suspect that deep down in, inside of him, inside of his heart, he probably thought to himself of Joshua, you have brought trouble on me this day. You have brought trouble on me. But in fact, it was he that had brought trouble on Joshua and on the people of Israel. And I've seen this in the lives and families of people and, and probably everyone in this room, you've seen it as well. You've probably seen some precious little wife trying to raise up her babies for Jesus. And she gets up in the morning, dresses her children, and quietly slips out of the house because she doesn't want to disturb her, her deadbeat, black, backslidden husband who's lying in bed. And she takes her babies to Sunday school and church. And then the revival power of God gets loose in the worship service. And people get saved and delivered and baptized in the Holy Spirit. And miracles happen. And so she's late getting home from church. And she walks in the front door of that house and she's accosted by this angry man you brought trouble on me why isn't my lunch ready why are you causing all this trouble he, listen God is dealing with eternal issues the souls of the fruit of his flesh his own children are at stake and he's made a God out of his belly it is he that has brought trouble to his household not she I've seen it in families with rebellious disobedient teenagers they want their own willful way. They, they want to live in the self-indulgence of the flesh. They want to go and do and act as they want with no restriction on them whatsoever. And their parents 
are praying to God that their child won't get some disease or die of a drug overdose or die in a, in a crash from drunk driving or, or, or pray that their, that their child's life won't be ruined by prison or destruction of some kind. And so they, they try to give some parameters. They set some guidelines. They set some rules for the protection of the child whom they live. And then that child in willful disobedience with haughty looks and, and proud eyes stares at their parents' faces and says, you trouble me. You're ruining my life. You trouble me. But I can say I wish every teenager in that, in that situation had to stand with me beside a casket of a teenager that's been killed in a, in a drunken car crash and stare into the weeping eyes of a mother and try to say something that makes any sense when there isn't anything to say. Stand with me and look into the eyes of a father whose son has committed suicide and, and say, I, I don't know what to say, but I love you and God loves you and I'm sorry for this trouble. Make no mistake about it. Sin brings trouble. The Valley of Achor is that place in life where we are confronted with the results of our own sins. Now, now, in that moment, it's important that we make a distinction in two categories. One is that we must be able to discern the prophetic interpretation of that event, discern that from, from the axe grinding on a private agenda. Because there are people who have private agendas who like to grind a few axes. It's important that we know the difference between the murmurer in his agenda, the, the backroom agitator who will be unmasked by his own tactics, and the true prophet of God who will be revealed by the witness of authority in his words. Whenever you're enduring trouble or hardship or dif difficulty, listen, uh, because I want you to understand, one of the things I'm saying, I'm not saying that all trouble comes from sin. Not all suffering is caused because you have sinned. But, but when you are enduring trouble or hardship or difficulty, beware of that false prophet who will stand in front of you and say, you're going through this because you have sinned. Reminds me a lot of Job's friends. When you read the book of Job's and you read about his friends, you begin to think to yourself, man, with friends like that, who needs enemies? Listen, I, I, I can stand out. Here's the thing about this. I can stand out at the end of, of the runway of any major city in America and I can point to every plane as it takes off and I can say that plane is going to crash and all the people on the plane are going to die. And I can point to every play, every plane and say that over and over. That one's going to crash. That one's going to crash. That one's going to crash. And you know what? If I stand there long enough and do that long enough, sooner or later, I'm going to be right. And at that moment, I can cross my arms and stare smugly into the television cameras and say, see there, I prophesied that. But you know what? The truth is I must be held accountable for the 999,999 airplanes that didn't crash. By the same token, what presumptuous arrogance is it to walk into the house of a family that's just lost a baby and say, you're suffering this because you've sinned. Well, well we've all sinned. We've all sinned. What if everybody in this room got all the trouble we deserve because of our sins? That's a, that's, a, that's a hard question. What if we got all the disease, all the death, all the destruction, all the loss, all the grief and fear and tears and crying and weeping that we deserve for our sins? You know, every now and then, have you ever heard anybody say something like this? Every now and then I hear somebody say, I just want what I deserve. You ever heard anybody say that? 
I hear that and I say, are you crazy? <laughs> you must be out of your mind. Dear Lord Jesus, no, don't give me what I deserve. I, I don't, don't ask for, don't plead for what you, what you deserve. Plead for grace. Someone once said, some country fella somewhere, he said, if we get what we deserve, who shall skate whipping? Wait, another way to paraphrase that is say, if we get what we deserve, who shall escape hell? However, the, the balance is that while we have to be aware, beware of the false prophet, the person who likes to point fingers, and, and they do that because it makes them feel better about themselves, makes them feel more self-righteous. That's why they point to other people and say, oh, you're just a sinner. You're just a dirty, run sinner. But on the, on the, the balance to that is to be open to the conviction of the Holy Spirit when you have sinned. And you know what? I think, generally speaking, you know when you have sinned. And, and you know you're suffering when you, w because you have sinned. And so be open to the conviction of the Holy, of the Holy Spirit. There, there, there must be a fine line between falling under the guilt and the condemnation and the fear of saying, I finally got what, I was, what was coming to me and blithely ignoring the, the will and the word of God that, that when we sin, we suffer and others around us suffer. But here's the question. How can we make the distinction? How can we tell the difference? Well, one way is very simple. Start with this. Humble yourself before God in times of trouble. Start right there. When you find yourself in the valley of trouble, humble yourself before God instantly and say, Lord God, if I have sinned in any way, I'm willing to hear from you. I want to know if I have offended you. I want to know if I have sinned. Oh God, please speak to me. Because listen, I would rather hear a word of rebuke from the lips of God than rivers of praise from the lips of men. So say, God, oh God, speak to me. Show me what's inside of me. Because sometimes we'll lie to ourselves. Anybody ever lie to yourself? You're the best person at deceiving yourself that, that there is in this world. Pray like David prayed when he said in Psalm 139, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Lord, see if there's any sin hidden in my heart. See if there's any sin hidden underneath my tent. If there's gold or silver hidden beneath my tent, oh God, reveal it to me. If I've acted covetously, if I've loved worldly things more than you, if I've been greedy, if I've been deceitful in any way, then God, speak to me. So humble yourself instantly. When you find yourself in that place of trouble, humble yourself and say, oh God, if I have sinned, I want to know. And that's a humbling moment. Be sensitive. Second thing, be sensitive to the encouragement of the Holy Spirit in times of trouble. When God says to us, you know, he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lead you through this. You ever had that moment where God spoke to you in the valley of trouble and he said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you through this. This, this is not the just deserts of your sin, but I'm going to guide you through these waters and you'll not be overwhelmed. I'm, I'm going to take you through the fire, but you're not going to be burned. But you know what? I think truth, and I said this earlier, truth, the truth is that we usually know when our suffering has been brought on by our own sin, sinfulness. You know, what happens is God says, 
Don't climb over that fence. Don't go into that field. Don't go that way. But we, we look at God and we say, and we may not say it with these words, but we at least say it with our actions. We say, no, no, you don't run my life. I'm a free man. You're not going to be God over my life. I'm God over my life. I'll jump that fence if I want to jump that fence. And you can hear God weeping, the cry, weeping, crying voice of God saying, no, no, don't go over that fence. Don't go into that field. Don't go that way. I love you. I don't want to limit your life. And we say, well, if you don't want to limit my life, then let me go into that field. Let me do whatever I want to do. And finally, in, re in rebellion, we leap that fence and we run into the field and we blow ourselves up on the landmines in that place. And then weeping and bleeding and crying and maimed as a result of our own rebellion, we cry out to God and say, oh God, am I suffering here because I've sinned? We know it. I, I believe there are people who are in that place and if they're open and sensitive and yielded to God, they will be able to hear that inner witness of the Spirit in that moment. I believe that you will know whether or not you've blown your own leg off, uh, climbing over the fence and playing in the minefield that God had forbidden you to, to be in. I believe that you can hear from the Holy Spirit to know whether you are suffering as a result of your own sin or whether you're just walking through some of the ups and downs of life that are common to all men. Because suffering happens for both reasons. But here's the thing. The valley of trouble, as we read, can become the doorway of hope. Jesus has the ability to take our eyes and move them above the temporary level of this life and fix them on eternal truths. You know, when you read the scripture, there some people came to Jesus and they said, what about those 18 people who died when the, when the tower in Siloam fell on them? They said, what about those, those people that were killed by Pilate's soldiers as they made sacrifices in the temple and their blood mingled with the blood of the sacrifice? And, and Jesus' answer, frankly, just doesn't seem very helpful because his answer was basically, he says, hey, towers fall. Hey, soldiers, sinful soldiers do bad things, but not everybody that gets stabbed is being punished by God. Not every tower that, that, that topples over was toppled by the hand of the Lord. But he said there are worse things to, to be considered besides what happens to our physical bodies. He said repent of your sins and allow God to lead you out of the valley of trouble in this life that you may know the eternal place of blessing in the life to come. See, here's, here's what I'm saying. The, the first time the Valley of Achor is mentioned, it was a place of suffering, right? Achan and his family, the, is, the nation of Israel had suffered greatly leading up to that place. The first time the Valley of Achor is mentioned in Scripture, it was a place of suffering. But the second time, it's transformed into a doorway of hope. The question is, how is the Valley of Trouble changed into the doorway of hope? And the answer is through confession and repentance. You know something I've learned over the years? You know who the easiest people in the world to witness to are? The easiest evangelism in the world is prison ministry. It is. I, I, I've done prison ministry. I love doing ministry in prisons. In fact, I mean, it's like it's not even like evangelism. That's like shooting fish in a barrel. I love prison ministry. You, you know why that is? The reason is because you don't have to start a ground on the ground floor. You don't have to convince a convict that he sinned. 
Every day when he puts on his orange prison clothes and, and, this, and, uh, and when he puts those on, the state says, you've sinned. The bars in the jail cell says, you've sinned. The, the guard outside the door says, you've sinned. He knows that he's sinned. And so that's an easy place to do evangelism. But you know where the hardest place in the world to do evangelism is? Well, I would not church. I think the hardest place where it's lean pickings, it's not at the jailhouse, it's at the country club. Guy gets out of his, walks out of his $500,000 house and climbs into his luxury automobile, drives to a church that looks like this one or, or even nicer and goes there Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. It's hard to convince that fellow that he sinned. But in, but in the moment, that, that crucial critical divine moment where the Holy Spirit of God witnesses with a heart that has hardened itself even as Achan did. In that moment, that one great moment where a man or a woman says, I have sinned. Then the valley of Achor changes its whole meaning. Confessing that I have sinned transformed the whole, transforms the whole shape and dynamic of the valley. God said through Hosea, I will take my bride where? He said, I will take my bride to the valley of Achor, into the wilderness, and I will transform the valley of Achor into the doorway of hope. L listen to what he's saying. The valley of trouble, when transformed by the moment of repentance, becomes the doorway of hope. I'm going to say it again. The valley of trouble, when transformed by the moment of repentance, becomes the doorway of hope. What a mighty God we serve. You see, God doesn't just lead us into the valley of trouble just so he can stomp us. Some people think that. Some people think God is, you know, this angry old man up in heaven just waiting for people to sin so he can get them, you know. Oh, I got him, stomp him. You know, we think he's like, well, you've sinned. You, you've sinned and I, I hate you, you weasley little skunk. But you know what? I, I've seen preachers and so-called prophets like that all my life, and I've had it with that kind of arrogant judgmentalism right up, right up to, to my nose. Listen, if you're, if you're, if you're going to be used of God to help somebody who's walking through the valley of Achor, who's walking through a situation, suffering that, that, have, that has been caused by their own sin, you can't approach them and say, oh, you, you caused this, you're just getting what you deserve. That's not going to help them. If you're going to be used of God to help somebody in the valley of Achor, you have to take their hand and walk into it with them and weep with them every single step of the way. But if you're one who says, well, you finally got what you deserve, if you take delight in their troubles, if you relish in their troubles, then you are not representing God. You are representing your own arrogant, self-righteous pride. You know, Dr. Mark Rutland, a uh, mentor of mine, he tells a story of a time when he was working as a chauffeur for an elderly lady in Washington, D.C., uh, he took the job, first of all, because he was desperate for money. But the second reason he took the job was because she had a Rolls Royce silver cloud. And he figured that it would be the only chance in his life to ever ride or drive a Rolls Royce silver cloud. So anyway, this, this elderly lady owned a private school. And Dr. Rutland was teaching at the school part-time while he was attending the University of Maryland. And 
One day he overheard her say that her chauffeur had quit and he need, she needed a new one. So he just spoke up and he said, I, I could come and do chauffeuring for you after school. I teach during the day, but maybe if, if, you, if you hired me, I could do it after school. And she agreed and she hired him. And so he would put on his, you know, the little chauffeur's uniform and the hat and drive her to wherever she needed to go. They'd go shopping and he would push the shopping cart or down south, he'd push the buggy. We got to know how to make sure we're communicating here. And, uh, and, and she would walk around and put things in the cart. And it was just a nice, easy little job to pick up a little extra, extra cash. Well, one day she came down to the school where he was teaching and she walked into the classroom. She had a companion with her. And she walked into his classroom and she said, will you let this substitute take this class for you? And will you come with me? And he said, well, yes, ma'am, I, I, I will. And they went out to this, to, uh, and got into the silver cloud and she said, put on your hat, put on your, your uniform, we're, we're going down to the hospital. She told him that one of the bus drivers for the school had been stabbed in a knife fight the night before in a, in a, in a bar and he was, he was in the hospital. And she said, I, I want to go down there and I want to visit him. Well, this really surprised Dr. Rutland because this, this lady was a really hard lady, very harsh. She was just really tough. And he, he was amazed at the sensitivity of the, of the owner of this school, wanting to go down and visit one of the bus drivers down at the hospital. He, he was just so amazed. And he, so he just said, yes, ma'am, let's go. And he put on the hat and drove all the way to downtown Washington, D.C. And they went up to about the 13th floor of the hospital. Guy was lying there. He was just cut open from his Google to his zatch, you know, all over the place. And he was just holding on to his life with his fingernails. He'd been through a number of surgeries and he had tubes running all over into his body all over the place. And this woman, she threw the door open, walked in. And this is what she said. She said, you told me you couldn't drive the bus yesterday because you were taking your mother to the hospital. You, you lied to me. You went to a party, got drunk, and got knifed. I hope you die. And she turned around and walked out. Just turned around and walked out. And Dr. Rutland was walking out thinking, boy, sure, I'm glad we came down here. And they got back into the Rolls Royce and he said to her, you know, ma'am, you've got a pretty amazing bedside manner. No, he didn't really say that. But here's the thing. I have heard preaching like that. I have heard preaching that said, you've sinned and you're going to hell and God's happy about it and so am I. Or at least it amounted to the same thing. You know, happy days are here again. What I'm here to tell you is that is not the mind and the character of God. That's not what God is like at all. God says, yes, you've sinned. Yes, you're experiencing trouble for it. Yes, you're hurting because of it. Yes, other people around you are hurting for it. But he says, but in one moment of divine grace, I can turn the valley of trouble into a doorway of hope. I can transform your life in one second. That's the mind of God. Listen to me. Have you sinned? Confess it. Confess it, deal, deal with it, bring it out, face it head on. And if you'll do that, immediately the grace of God begins to work in us to transform the valley of Achor into the valley of hope. You know, this past December, um, I think it was, I may have my math wrong. No, it was right, that's right. This past December, 
marked the 80th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. And I want to share with you in closing one of, one of the most amazing stories to come out of World War II and its aftermath. The lead plane that dropped the first bomb on Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, was flown by Captain Mutsuo Fuchida. You'll see him on the screen. He was the man who coordinated the entire aerial attack on that infamous day. At the end of World War II, having survived the war and it's having survived the horror of two nuclear bombs being dropped in Japan, he looked at the devastation of his country and he was filled with bitterness, uh, hatred and resentment toward Americans and toward God. His heart was just overflowing with lethal hatred. Surely, he said, my country is in the valley of trouble. Then came the war trials. Japanese generals and politicians were put on trial for war crimes, particularly for atrocities committed, committed in the prisoner of war camps. Well, Captain Fuchida never denied that those things had been done in the Japanese POW camps, but he was convinced that they were also done in American POW camps. So he set about to research the atrocities committed by, by the Americans against Japanese prisoners in POW camps here in the United States. Well, in the spring of 1947, he learned that, that 150 Japanese POWs would return to Japan from the U.S. So he, he met them at the Uraga Harbor near Yokosuka. One of the men who returned was actually a friend of his named Kazuo Kanagasaki. They say that 10 times fast. And he, he had, this man had been rescued from the ocean and was taken to the U.S. as a POW. And Captain Fuchida asked him how he was treated in the camp. And he told Fuchida about a young teenage girl named Peggy Caldwell who would come to the camp week after week after week after week administering grace and caring for their needs and praying with them and bringing packages to them. Well, Peggy Cavell had every right to hate the Japanese. Peggy had grown up in Japan where her parents were uh, they served as missionary teachers at a, at a, in a middle school there. In 1939, it became clear that the country was unstable, so for their safety, the family was relo relocated to the Philippines. Peggy completed her, her high school in Manila in 1940 and returned to the United States to go to, to college. And her, her younger uh, brother and sister came along with her as her parents, Jim and Charma, wanted to keep all the children safe from the deteriorating political situation in Asia. Well, Manila was captured by the Japanese troops in, on January 2nd, 1942. Jim and Charma fled inland with the rest of the missionary team to a remote mountain hideout that they, they just called Hope Vale. On December 9th, 1943, Japanese soldiers captured Hope Vale and sentenced the missionaries to death because they had a radio. The next day, the missionaries asked for time to pray together and read their Bibles. And, and then, still singing hymns, they were escorted up the mountain and beheaded. And their bodies were thrown into a hut and burned. In spite of that, Peggy went to this POW camp in Colorado and ministered to the POWs with tireless energy and grace. She said, if you're uncomfortable or need anything, let me know. I'll, if I, I'll do anything I can to help you. Well, after several weeks of this, finally, some of the prisoners, uh, Japanese prisoners, could not, couldn't stand it anymore. And they said, why are you so kind to us? 
And every time she was asked that question, she always answered the same way. She said, the Japanese army killed my parents, but the Holy Spirit has washed away all my hatred and has replaced it with love. Peggy said, the sin of your people and the sin of your government has brought trouble upon me and my family. She said, I, my hatred for the Japanese burned white hot until God turned the valley of my trouble into a doorway of hope. And she said, now I'm here to offer you hope. Well, soldier after soldier after soldier after soldier told Captain Fuchida about this young woman ministering to the needs of the soldiers that represented the government that had executed her missionary parents. And it just began to move on Fuchida's heart. In October of 1948, Captain Fuchida was given a pamphlet about an American by the name of De Jacob DeShazer. DeShazer was in the crew of one of the planes that bombed Tokyo and Nagoya in the Doolittle Raids of 1942. His plane had run out of fuel and he had to land in a Japanese-occupied area of China. And he was captured and held in various POW camps in China until the end of war and being beaten and tortured numerous times. His hatred toward the Japanese grew stronger and stronger and stronger, almost driving him crazy. And after two years, DeShazer was given a Bible to read and he devoured the contents of the Bible within three weeks. And at the end of that, that time of devouring the word of God, he trusted Jesus as his savior. And he promised God that if he got out of prison alive, that he would become a missionary to the Japanese people and he kept his promise the second story of love overcoming hatred hit Fuchida with an even greater impact Fuchida was determined to get a copy of the Bible and read it for himself and so he purchased a New Testament and he started to read it every day in September of 1949 Captain Fuchida came across a passage in Luke 23 42 where Jesus prayed from the cross and he said father Forgive them. They know not what they do. Those words were the source of love that both Jacob DeShazer and Peggy Cavell had shown. And in that moment, Captain Fuchida opened his heart to the Lord Jesus Christ. From that time until his death in 1976, Captain Mitsuo Fuchida became a world-class evangelist, author, and missionary who brought the Lord Jesus Christ to thousands upon thousands, not only of his fellow Japanese, but all around the world. I think it's a wonderful testimony to the amazing grace of God that the pilot of the lead plane that dropped the first bomb on the first ship in the first moments of Pearl Harbor became a trophy of grace and preached up unto his death 35 years later. And here we are over 80 years later, and even after his death, his life is still giving glory to God. Yet he was converted at a time when his people, his nation, his life, was in a valley of trouble. You know, the Valley of Achor is not a nice place to be, isn't it? It's, that's true. Nobody, nobody likes it. Nobody likes to be in the, in the valley of trouble. But in a moment of humble submission, the valley of trouble can become the doorway of hope.
I believe there's somebody here this morning or somebody that's watching on the live stream that is saying to yourself, even as you sit in your pew, even as you're watching this on your phone or your computer, you're saying to yourself as you sit there, some teenager, some young girl, some young man, a businessman, a, 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 an old man, an elderly person, somebody who's saying I'm suffering and everybody else around me is suffering because I know I'm out of fellowship with God. I'm not where I need to be with Him. I'm not right with God. And I'm suffering and people around me are suffering because I haven't been humble enough to make it right with Him. Well, are you in the valley of trouble? I can tell you this, it can get worse. In fact, it can get eternally worse. But I'm also here to tell you that by the loving grace of our Heavenly Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, His Son, friend, I want you to know, it can get better. This valley of trouble can be transformed into a valley of hope. Every head bowed, every eye closed, all over this place, please. Father, as we come into your presence, I don't know who you're speaking to, but God, I know that there's somebody, there's somebody, Lord God, that they're looking at their lives and they're saying, I know Things are not really right. I know I've been putting up with sin. I've been allowing sin. I've been justifying sin. And I know it's creating suffering. It's hurting my relationships. It's hurting my marriage. It's hurting my family. Certainly it's hurting us. Individually. And God, I pray that even now, Lord, you would just draw that person and help them to realize, God, that you're not here today to condemn. Because, Jesus, you took that condemnation upon yourself. You took that conviction. You took that sin. You paid the price. But, Lord, you're here to, to turn that valley of trouble into a, valley, into a doorway of hope. And, Father, I pray if there's anybody here that would look inside and they would be honest and humble enough to say things are not right with God, that today, Lord, would be the day they make it right. Today, Lord God, as they humble themselves before you and they repent before you, that you would turn that valley of trouble into a doorway of hope. With heads bowed and eyes closed, and there's nobody looking around, this is very personal. If you're here and you'd say, Pastor Dave, I want you to pray for me. I just know that there's something in my heart, something that's not right. And I want to humble myself before my God. Listen, I'm not going to embarrass you. That's not the goal of this. The goal is for you to turn to Him. If that's you and say, Pastor, I want you to pray for me today. As I repent before God, as I humble myself, I want to make sure that it's, everything is right with God. If that's you, just slip your hand up right where you are, would you? Yes, yes, several hands. Anybody else? Yes. Maybe you're watching on the live stream. Just type in the comments, just say, pray for me. We'll pray for you. Is there anybody else? All right, you can put your hand down. Here, here's the other thing. As I said, and this message was not geared toward this, but there are times of when we walk through the valley of trouble and suffering. It's not because of our sin, but it's just because the world is broken. And this morning, if you'd say, Pastor, I want you just to pray for me. I'm walking through the valley of trouble right now. 
And I, I feel like my heart is right with God, but I'm just really hurting. And I need somebody to pray for me today. If that's you, would you slip your hand up? Yes. Yeah, several hands. Several hands. Father, you see every person. You know where we are, Lord God. Even when we lie to ourselves, you're still honest about where we are. And God, I just pray that in Jesus' name, that those that are here today that, that are saying that their heart is not right, they're not where they need to be with, with you, Lord. I pray that in this moment, that they would not rely on my prayer for them, but God, that they would just simply talk to you and say, God, I humble myself. I confess my sin to you. And Lord God, that you would, in this very moment, in this very instant, turn their valley of trouble into a doorway of hope. Because God, now, after this moment, they have hope for what's going to come. And God, you see every other person in this room, those that raised their hand and said, man, Lord, I'm just really hurting. Walking through this valley of trouble. Feel like things are right with God. I've prayed. I've humbled myself before Him, but I'm just still hurting. I'm still suffering. God, I pray that you would speak to them and you would would just give them the assurance and say, I'm with you. I'm going to see you through this. You may walk through the fire, but you're not going to be burned. You may walk through the flood, but you will not be drowned. You won't be overcome. Just trust in me, rest in me, rely on me. And God, I pray that in this moment, in those hearts, that the peace of God would just flood their lives. That they would just have a calm, calmness, a calm assurance that God, you are in control. Lord, I pray that today, Lord God, that as we leave this place, that we'd be aware that there are people all around us walking through the valley of trouble. And there are many, many people that we know that are suffering because of the, suffering as a result of their own sin, their own actions. God, I pray you'd help us to be people of compassion, that we won't be one of those that points our finger and says, you're just getting what you deserve, but God, that we would, we would take them by the hand and walk through that valley with them. We would weep with them every step of the way and we would remind them that there is hope and forgiveness in Christ. Lord, I pray that as we go from this place, I ask, Lord God, that you would keep your hand upon us, that you would anoint us. We pray even now, Lord God, for this next weekend, for the egg hunt, for, for the, uh, all of the Easter activities. Lord, none of that is worth anything without you. So God, we put it in your hands and we pray, God, to ask you to glorify your name through all of it. And I pray that as we leave this place, God, that we would be tools in your hands, that we would be trophies of grace, just like this, this, this Japanese pilot was, that we would, we would be a walking, living billboard of what the grace of God can do in the lives of, of, of people who come before you and humbly repent before you. And God, I pray that you would help us, help us to make a difference in this world. And we pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you.